Let's pray. Father, would you convince us this morning that you will shine forth and that this is your world. And Lord, would you cause our hearts and our affections to be aligned with what you have de defined as good and to be opposed to what you have, what you have identified as evil. Lord, cause us to be those who love your discipline, those who love your teaching. Make us feel it, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 94. And as you turn there, I want to mention to you this story that was on the front page of this weekend's Wall Street Journal. The, the title of the story is U.S. to Rebels, Listen to Mom. It's a story about the way that the United States military is trying to woo these, these young men who have been abducted by Joseph Kony. Maybe you've heard that name. He founded this guerrilla group in Africa, Africa called the Lord's Resistance Army. And their practice was to descend upon villages and murder and pillage and then seize young men, young boys, five-year-olds, five-year-olds to 15-year-olds. They would abduct these young men, and there's one account of a, a young 15-year-old boy being seized in this article, and they, they said to him, if you move, we're going to shoot you. And then they said, which of these people are your parents? And he identified his parents, and then they asked him, which one do you love more? And when he said, my dad, they began to beat his dad with a log. And then uh, other boys, as soon as they are abducted into captivity, they're forced to murder other children who have been seized. The, the idea seems to be that they, they want to so harden these young men and so force them to commit atrocities that they feel like they can never go back, they can never go home, and they can never be normal again. And, and I raise this. Because the first words of Psalm 94 can be shocking unless you're thinking about this kind of injustice. So look at Psalm 94, verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance. We might not like to think about God as a God of vengeance unless we're thinking about somebody who's done the kinds of things that Joseph Coney has done. And then I think probably if you consider the kinds of things that Joseph Coney has done and the kinds of evils and atrocities that they've perpetrated, you might begin to resonate with the prayer of the psalmist. And he repeats it here in verse 1, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Now the psalmist, what he's asking, it's, it's, it's almost envisioning a long night. And what the psalmist is saying, to, to paraphrase something Derek Kidner wrote, he's saying there's nothing wrong with the sun. It's just that the night is long. There's nothing wrong with God's justice. It just needs to shine forth. And he continues here in verse 2, Rise up, 
O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. You can feel in the psalmist a sense of justice that has been wronged, right? The psalmist knows what right and wrong are. He knows what is just and unjust, and he's calling on the Lord to rise up and do justice. And then at the end of, or in verse 3, this question also assumes that this is not going to go on forever. The que- Let's be very clear about what the question assumes. The question assumes that postmodernism is false, right? Because there isn't this indeterminacy. There isn't this lack of moral absolutes. The question in Psalm 94.3, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? The question assumes there is wickedness, there is evil. And the question also assumes it's not going to last forever. It is not going to prevail forever. So in this story, uh, what the U.S. soldiers are doing is is they are flying helicopters over the jungle areas where these, these guys are in hiding, and they're dropping leaflets. And where they can, they'll get photographs of these boys as they were when they were abducted, and maybe photographs of their family members. And they'll print these on these leaflets, and then they'll print these messages on the leaflets uh, communicating to these men where they can go to to be safe, where they can escape to. And then if they can record uh, their mothers or their family members communicating, come home. Everything can be forgiven. You will be welcomed back. They'll play these on on these loudspeakers, and they're they're trying to appeal to these men in their hearts, these hardened men who are abducted as children and forced to do horrible things, they're trying to say to them, come home. And so even as, even as the U.S. Army appeals to this sense of right and wrong, because see, the, the assumption is these guys know that what they're doing is wrong. They know why they might not be able to go home because they've done evil. And then they're, they're offering forgiveness. It's, it's a, sort of a parody of, of the Christian faith. Verses 1 through 3, though, here in Psalm 94, is a plea that men like Joseph Coney would be crushed under God's justice. Verses 4 through 7, the psalmist is going to shift from talking to the Lord to describing these wicked that he wants to see destroyed. So verse 4, he says, they pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. So, so these are wicked people who go on in their wickedness. And as they, as they do these awful things, they talk as though they're going to get away with it. And then in verse 5, the psalmist says, they crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. I want to shift away from Joseph Coney for just a second and read to you from this book by Robert Spencer called The Truth About Muhammad. Um, people, people say a lot of things about Islam. Um, I think the, this is what um, Islam actually holds. Uh, Spencer writes, the prophet of Islam codified the expansionist imperative 
as one of the duties of his new community. He received a revelation from Allah that commanded Muslims to fight against Jews and Christians until they accepted Islamic hegemony, Islamic rule, symbolized by payment of a poll tax, which is in Arabic is a jizya. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. And then, and then a, a paragraph later, it says, the Jews and Christians who agreed to pay the jizya, the poll tax, that, that uh, the, the Muslims subject them to, were known as dimmies. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that Arabic word correctly. But this word dimmy, it, has a, it sort of has a double meaning. One aspect of it is protected. Okay, so in other words, if you'll pay the tax, we won't kill you. But the other aspect of the meaning of that word is guilty. Guilty. And the reason the Muslims regard the Jews and Christians who submit or, or who are subjected forcibly, the reason they're regarded as guilty is because they had not only rejected Muhammad as prophet, but they had distorted the legitimate revelations they received from Allah, the truth of the scriptures. Guilty. Look at verse 5 again. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. In, in Sharia law, it is mandated that if a, Muslim com- if a Muslim converts to Christianity, he's to be put to death. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. Verse 6, they kill the, so- the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. These, these vulnerable people, widows who don't have a husband to protect them, sojourners who are not surrounded by a family unit, fatherless children, orphans who have no parents to, to shield them, these wicked people take advantage of them. And then verse 7, and they say, Yahweh does not see. Now, there, there are different ways this could be taken. They could be saying, these wicked people could be saying, Yahweh? Come on. Yahweh? Allah. Yahweh doesn't see. They could be doing that kind of thing. Or... There might be this implicit way in which the wicked are saying, I'm going to escape his gaze. You can claim if you want that Yahweh is the Lord of the universe, but so far I haven't suffered any punishment. Yahweh does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Okay, so in verses 1 through 3, the psalmist has called on the Lord to rise up and do justice against these wicked people that he then describes in verses 4 through 7, their way of life. And now in verses 8 through 11, the psalmist is going to address these wicked people. And um, before we go forward, you know, I've been talking about people out there, right? I've been talking about um, um, the wickedness of Joseph Coney in Africa. And I've been talking about the wickedness of Islam out there. But we also need to recognize ways in which we think this way. Ways in which in our hearts there, is, there, there can be this callousness toward the fact that God sees what we do. And I would invite you to just survey the last week in your life and think about what you did and what was going on in your mind when you engaged in various sins that you committed. And, and I, I suspect that if we could look at, into your hearts, into your mind, we would all see there was no thought of the Lord. And, and you, could, you could put over that action in your mind, 
the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Because if you thought he was watching, you would have acted differently. So this speaks to the wicked out there, but it also speaks to us. In verse 8, the psalmist is going to address these people engaged in wickedness. And he's going to, he's going to address all of us who are sinners. And, and the last word of verse 7, it doesn't look this way in the ESV, but the last word of verse 7 is the same as the first word in verse 8. So you could translate verse 8, if you, if you were to stay with perceive at the end of verse 7, you could say, perceive, O dullest of the people. And, and the language here to describe the dullest of the people and the fools who are being addressed there in verse 8 is the same language that we saw back in Psalm 92, where we read in verse 6, the stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this. So, so these psalms are, are thematically related. They're, they're dealing with the same kinds of people. And the psalmist calls on these fools and these these uh, brutish people who are stupid, and he asks them there in verse 8, when will you be wise? When will you be wise? And then what follows is a series of rhetorical questions. And these questions, they, they all bring out the fact that God is our creator, God is our judge, and God is our teacher. God is our creator, God is our judge, God is our teacher. Look at verse 9. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? That, that question is getting at the fact that if God made man, if God planted the ear in your head, he's not going to be oblivious to what you say, right? If God is your creator, God is aware of what you're doing. He who planted the ear does not hear. He who formed the eye does he not see. The psalmist is inviting fools to recognize that everything that we say and do is open and laid bare before our judge. And the judge comes in next in verse 10. He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? Here, I think the argument goes like this. You can all look at the world, and you can see the way that nations have come under God's discipline. And if God is going to discipline a nation, is he not going to discipline an individual? He who teaches man knowledge, at the end of verse 10. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. And here what the psalmist does is he brings in the brevity of life. The thoughts of man, the plans of man, just a breath. And, and actually the word there that's rendered breath is the same term uh, that, that, that is Abel's name in the Old Testament. And Abel had a very short life. He was murdered by his brother. And, and the word for man here is the word Adam, Adam. Adam sinned and brought death into the world. And I think what, what's suggested by these names that, that sort of call up uh, death, I think what's suggested is this. No sinner, no rebel against God's authority 
is going to succeed in achieving some kind of ongoing, everlasting life where they, they disregard God's authority, they reject God's command, commandments, and then they continue in perpetual youth and strength and health. It's not going to happen. We are but a breath. Our thoughts, our plans, our vapor. No one is going to overcome the Creator and live forever in freedom from God's law and its consequences. We sin because we don't realize that God sees and hears what we're doing. We sin because we think this is the way to the good life. This is the path to pleasure. And we're also inclined to think that God's discipline for our sin is a negative experience, right? We don't, none of us wants to undergo the consequences of what we've done. We're inclined to think of discipline as negative. And here the psalmist is turning all this on its head. Look at verse 12. We should perceive what a shocking statement this is. Blessed is the man whom you discipline. Oh, Lord, blessed is the man who gets caught red-handed and suffers the consequences. <laughs> who wants to affirm that, right? I don't want to get caught. I don't want the consequences of what I've done to fall on me. But the psalmist is saying, blessed is the man whom you discipline. Blessed is the man whom you discipline. What the psalmist is saying is, the good life is not achieved by escaping God's notice. Nor is the good life to be had by sinning with impunity and avoiding the consequences. And, and when we spin out our fantasies, whatever they are, when we, when we think about how uh, all our friends can envy what we've achieved and maybe we can enjoy all the pleasures that we've ever hoped for or whatever, when we spin out those fantasies, what we're doing is we're thinking, if I could just sin with impunity, if I could be greedy with impunity, if I could be lustful and suffer no consequences, if I could be proud and not have to worry about people not liking it, if I could sin and get away with it. And the psalmist is saying, nope, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. And, and part of the reason for this is, when we experience God's discipline, when we get caught in the act and we suffer the consequences and we're punished for our transgression, it opens us up and makes us ready to receive instruction. At least that's how it's intended to function. It's intended to bring us to a place where we realize that's not the path to joy. I need to learn the path to life. And this is the rest of verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. So let me invite you to just look at your life and, and take stock of your life and ask yourself, where am I suffering God's discipline? Where am I enduring? And this is, there, in every one of our lives, we are going to be experiencing this. We are going to be experiencing negative consequences for the way that we talk to people. Negative consequences for the way that we think about things. Negative consequences for the way that we act. This is in all of our lives we can identify these things. Where am I experiencing negative consequences? How can I bring the teaching of the Scriptures to bear on my heart in those places? That's what 
leads to blessedness. When you realize, this is not helping me. I want to learn the scriptures. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble. This is somebody, uh, that you, you, could, you could think of this as days of evil. This is the, the days of evil. If, if you look at the world and you say, how long is somebody like Joseph Coney going to go on doing this kind of thing? Or if you look at, if you look at all the hell that Chairman Mao brought on China. And it is awful. I mean, this book, this thick book, almost seven, almost 800 pages here, it is all murder, atrocity, torture. I, don't, I cannot read to you the things that they did to people in this book. It is that horrific. I, I would not dare to describe it from this pulpit. It's horrible what, what Mao Zedong did in China. And it's a thick volume, all filled with atrocity. How long is it going to go on? He came to power in the 30s, late 40s, and, and he lived until 1976, and the ramifications, the repercussions are still ongoing in China. How long is it going to last? And what the psalmist is saying here in verse 13 is that those who experience God's discipline, those who are taught out of God's law, we look at the days of evil that seem to go on forever, and we have rest we have rest because then we go to the scriptures and, and we experience the consolation of the teaching of the Bible. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, the Bible, the Pentateuch, to give him rest from days of evil. So if you look at the world and you say, what kind of a place is this? Where is God? The psalmist is saying, study the Bible. Study the Bible and God will give you rest in response to these evil days. And you'll know that, that this is what's happening. Look at the end of verse 13. Until a pit is dug for the wicked. You'll understand that what's happening is God is storing up wrath for the day of punishment. God is storing up all of his indignation and fury. And, and you'll be able to rest in confident faith. You'll be able to say... I'm going to obey Romans 12. I'm going to leave room for God's wrath. And I'm not going to repay evil for evil. And I'm going to wait for the day when that pit, that other places in the, in the Psalms we see, the wicked digs a pit and then he falls into it himself. That pit is being dug. And when that pit is dug, the wrath is going to fall. And here's why, verse 14. For the Lord will not forsake his people he will not abandon his heritage. Notice same ter two terms for, for God's people in verse 14 are the terms we saw in verse 5. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. This is what the wicked are doing to God's people, but the Lord is not abandoning them. The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Verse 15, for justice will return to the righteous. And all the upright in heart will follow it. Justice will return to the righteous. Justice will prevail. Uh, in, this, in this article about Joseph Coney, one of the guys that was wooed out was his communications director. This is a, 
chieftain, right, in the ranks, high up official, but he knows in, a, in his heart, this is evil what we're doing. And, and there are stories about how these guys, Coney tells them as these leaflets fall through the, through the jungle, uh, it's communicated to them, that stuff is poisonous and anybody who touches it is going to be shot. And so these guys, you know, they'll, they'll pick this thing up and quickly glance at it and see the map of where they can flee to, the safe spots that they can flee to, and then they'll drop it as quickly as they can get their hands off of it so that nobody knows. And then they'll watch for an opportunity. And as soon as they get an opportunity to flee, they're gone. Because evil is self-defeating. Verse 15, justice will return to the righteous. We know in our hearts what's right and wrong. It's, it's written into us. Justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. So in verses 1 through 3, the psalmist is calling out to the Lord to shine forth, to do justice. Verses 4 through 7, he describes the evil of the wicked. Verses 8 through 11, he addresses the wicked and warns them. Verses 12 through 15, he pronounces a blessing on those who have experienced God's corrective discipline. And now, in verses 16 through 19, the psalmist cries out for a champion. He says in verse 16, Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? The question goes unanswered in the psalm. But in the context of the Psalter, we've been reading about this future king from David's line who's going to triumph. And in the context of the Old Testament, there's all this hope of this coming divine warrior, this, this hope for this one who's going to come and he's going to visit retribution on God's enemies. He will definitively deliver God's people. He will be their champion. And what's remarkable about the way that this gets fulfilled in the New Testament is that the one who comes to defeat evil is also the one who took evil into himself and bore the full weight of God's justice against it to pay the penalty for everybody that will turn away from it and put their trust in him. So we can answer the question, who rises up for me against the wicked? Jesus does. Who stands up for me against evil doers? Jesus has. He's the champion. But the psalmist, even though he's looking forward to that future figure, he knows the Lord's help. And I think everybody that's a believer in Jesus, everybody that knows God in this room, can identify with the words of verse 17. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. Isn't that how you feel? If you walk with God, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. Without God, we couldn't make it. But the Lord's help, the Lord's help is as constant as the wicked's fury. And in this psalm, those verses 8 through 11 and verses 12 through 15 are kind of these middle sections. And then verses 16 through 19 is balancing verses 4 through 7. So while the wicked, in verse 4, are pouring out their arrogant words and crushing God's people in verse 5, the Lord is their help in verse 17, keeping His people alive. 
And then he says in verse 18, when I thought, my foot slips. It's an image of somebody who's losing his footing and he's beginning to slide. And, and what, what begins to happen to us, I think, I think this literal image of the foot slipping is, is figurative or metaphorical of what happens to us when we see the wicked who seem to prosper and we wonder if judgment is actually going to fall. We, we look at the fleeting pleasures of the sin that transgressors enjoy and we begin to think maybe we could get away with it too. And then we begin to feel this tension within ourselves. And, and we feel like we're all tied up in knots because we feel lured by this evil. And, and that causes discomfort within us because we know it's wrong. He says, when I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. How did he experience God's steadfast love? I think probably in that moment of crisis, as his foot began to slip, the way that he experienced God's steadfast love is the same way that you and I would experience. And that is that the scriptures come to mind. And the scriptures and God's spirit mediate God's steadfast love to us. That's what we need. We need God's steadfast love to uphold us, to sustain us, to keep us from plunging into wickedness. And in order for that to happen in our lives, we have to fight. You have to fight to know the Bible. You have to fight to retain the words of Scripture in your memory bank. And then you have to pray. You need to go to war with the, with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and the shield of faith. And you need to pray that God would enable you to be equipped in the moment of danger so that when Satan attacks, you're not standing there with no armor on, no breastplate of righteousness, no helmet of salvation, no sword, no shield, vulnerable, pierced through and defeated. You got to fight. You got to commit yourself to the discipline of meditating on Scripture. You got to commit yourself. You got to re remind yourself. When I wake up in the morning, I want to fix my mind on the Word of God. I don't need to look at the weather app. I don't need to look at ESPN. If I'm going to turn on my phone, what I need to look at is Bible. That's the first thing that I need to put into my heart in the morning. And the last thing before you go to bed at night, look at the Bible. I think this is why Deuteronomy 6 instructs fathers to teach the Bible constantly to their children. children when you rise up and when you lie down. First thing in the morning, last thing in the evening. Put Scripture into your mind. And then when you walk by the way and when you sit in your house all the time, we need to be contemplating the, the truths of the Scriptures, repeating them, discussing them. When I said, verse 18, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. And then verse 19, the ESV renders this, when the cares of my heart are many. Another way to translate this, you could say, in the abundance of my disquieting thoughts within me. These disquieting thoughts. I don't know if it's feeling the tug of temptation or if it's feeling where is God's justice or maybe it's some con combination where those, those get together and form this, this wicked cocktail that, that begin to make you think maybe I should just go for it. Maybe I should just go ahead and plunge into sin. 
in the abundance of my disquieting thoughts within me, when the cares of my heart are many, second part of verse 19, your consolations cheer my soul. Consolation, I looked that word up. I put it into dictionary.com. Consolation, a synonym for that is comfort. Your comforts, the way that you console me. How does God console us? Well, he just said in verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 18, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. And then I think the consolations, he's going to go into it a little bit in verse 20. Uh, We'll we'll get to that. But let's just stay here in verse 19 for a second and think about the way that God's comfort cheers our souls. This is comfort that stems from the knowledge that God sees. Verse 9, he who planted the ear. He hears and he sees. He who planted the ear, he who formed the eye. He sees, he hears, and he will judge. Verse 10, he who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? It looks attractive, but God's going to judge for that. And it comes from God's steadfast love. It comes from the good life that the blessed enjoy. I listened to this uh, podcast, maybe you saw it on um, Dr. Mueller's uh, briefing email about hookup culture on college campuses. And um, this, this female sociologist is talking about the way that really what's happening here is, is uh, women are being used. And this, this quote, she's, she identifies, this is, I don't think she's a believer, secular sociologist studying the way that college students are conducting themselves. And, and the guy, it's like the guy interviewing her is driven to ask the question, it almost sounds like you're saying this is the rape culture. And she says, yes, that's exactly what it is. The hookup culture is the rape culture. And, and I bring this up because the lady is saying, What's absent from these interactions, these hookups, what's absent is kindness, affection, commitment, love. And I'm thinking to myself, marriage, right? The joys of marriage. Marital love is what is satisfying. Marital love is a consolation of the Lord because Because this is the good life, not that cheap, knockoff, perverse version of it that people are trying to get through a hookup culture that leaves them feeling used and and raped. So the good life that the blessed enjoy is part of the way that God consoles and comforts His people. And and these, these consolations come from these pleasures of God that satisfy the soul. Your consolations cheer my soul. If you want God's consolations, you have to walk with Him. You have to walk with Him, and then you have to stay on the path of righteousness. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. And then verse 20, I think this is another part of this. This is the way that the Lord is consoling the, the psalmist. He, he goes back to rhetorical questions in this final section. Verse 20, can wicked rulers be allied with you? 
Now think about what he's asking. Are you going to make a deal with the devil? Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Are you going to make peace with evil? And then he, he goes on to describe about these, these wicked rulers a little bit more. Those who frame injustice by statute. Wicked, wicked rulers frame injustice by statute. In this, this um, book, The Truth About Muhammad, Robert Spencer recounts this incident in Muhammad's life where accusations were brought against one of his wives. And as a result of these false accusations, a requirement was introduced that four male Muslim witnesses must be produced in order to establish a crime of adultery. Okay, so in order to establish that somebody's committed adultery, you have to have four male Muslim adult witnesses. The result of that, I'm just going to read this, this paragraph from this book. It is even today... In, in lands where Sharia law is followed, it is even today virtually impossible to prove rape. Unscrupulous men can commit rape with impunity. As long as they deny the charge and there are no witnesses, they get off scot-free because the victim's account, the woman's testimony, is inadmissible because women's, women's testimony doesn't count in Muslim places under Sharia law. And then he goes on even worse. If a woman accuses a man of rape, she may end up incriminating herself. If the required male witnesses can't be found, the victim's charge of rape becomes an admission of adultery. That accounts for the grim fact that as many as 75% of the women in prison in Pakistan are in fact behind bars for the crime of being a victim of rape. 75% of the women in jail in Pakistan, are in jail because they got raped. And they accused, at least according to this book, they, accu they, they leveled the accusation. They didn't have four male witnesses, so it became a charge of adultery against them. Those who frame injustice by statute, right? That is a wicked law that's on the books. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute... Answer, no, no, because for God to do that would be for him to deny his own character, his own righteousness. For God to do that would be for him to deny his love for his own people, things that he will not do. Verse 21, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. Again, you know, we can think of this this law that says that if somebody converts to Christianity, they die. That's a condemnation of the innocent to death. But the ultimate, the ultimate picture of this is Christ on the cross. They band together against the life of the righteous. Jesus is the righteous one. He is the innocent one. And they condemned him to death. So for the Lord to make an alliance with wicked rulers, those who frame injustice by statute would be for him to agree with those who crucified Jesus. It, it would be for him to make peace with the wicked, for him to overturn his righteous standard, deny his righteous character. And then, under those circumstances, the wicked could get away with their sin, consequence-free. But the Lord loves his Son, who is righteous. And the righteousness of the Son is God's own righteousness. 
And this is why, verse 22, the psalmist can say, the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. We know what good and evil are because of who God is. We know because God has revealed himself. And so the Lord is our stronghold. The Lord is our rock of refuge. And then the psalm ends in verse 23 where it began in verse 2. So verse 2, repay to the proud what they deserve. Verse 23, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. One answer, one valid answer, as we share the gospel with friends and neighbors, and they ask ask us the question, where is God as Joseph Coney commits these atrocities? Where is God as Sharia law seems to spread, as Islam seems to be multiplying and even outnumbering Christianity. I think I saw a stat this week that said by 2070, Islam will be the major religion in the world. Um, this is, they're multiplying fast, you know. They believe in polygamy. They take multiple wives. They have lots of children. And Christians are being outnumbered in terms of birth rate. Where is God in all this? One answer, just wait. Just wait. He's coming. He's coming. Jesus is going to come on a white horse And he's going to make all things right in accordance with his righteous standard. And then I think we ought to appeal to people's sense of righteousness. We ought to appeal to their desire for forgiveness. In this uh, story about these these, uh, men coming out of the jungle and coming home, there were two, two interesting rituals enacted by the home village of, in one of these cases, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a touching story. This man who's now um, 19, who was five when he was abducted, and then he, he found one of these pamphlets with his picture on it and, and a picture of, of uh, his daughter holding a letter that he had written to her. And um, over the years, they had found a corpse that they thought was him. And so they thought this man was dead. And then he comes... He comes escorted back into the village alive, and the whole village broke out in celebration. And they did these two things that that seemed to symbolize, in their culture, the wiping away of all his past transgressions. He stepped on an egg, crushed an egg, and then they washed his face. And and I'm, I'm reading this and thinking, how much better if he could have the gospel, if he could have the truth that the Lord Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent and the blood of Christ washing away his sin. Let's pray together. Father, you save sinners. And Lord, you will judge the wicked. Lord, we pray that you would cause us in our souls to hate evil. And cause that hatred of evil, cause the pain that is brought into people's lives to be what we think of when we are confronted with temptation. Lord, help us to see the ugliness, the ugly underside of that attractive exterior. And Lord, cause us to feel revulsion toward these wicked things that would tempt us away from you. Convince us, Lord, of your goodness. Console us. 
Cause us to be those who, who know what the psalmist is talking about when he says, your consolations delight my soul. And Lord, uphold us by your steadfast love, we ask. Make us those who trust you and who know that you are going to do what is right and you are going to satisfy every yearning in our hearts. We commit ourselves to you until that day in Christ's name. Amen.